Welcome to Radio Wealth. You're listening to me, Craig Turnbull. Radio Wealth, inspiration and guidance for next generation property investors. Today's episode is brought to you by BrickRaise, real estate investing for all. It's a brand new and exciting way of property investing. You can start with just a small amount of your savings or super, and you won't ever have to borrow large to be a property investor. BrickRaise is now open to investors and for those looking to raise capital. Go to www.brickraise.com and get started today. Welcome to Radio Wealth, episode 12. This is our developer special. Uh, I'm quite excited about this one because development is something very close to my heart. It's actually how I've managed to uh, make my money over the last 30 years. And development can take all sorts of um, phases, as it were. And some people might call renovating as a development process. And in fact, in the UK, uh, they call real estate developers um, are actually renovators. That's what they do because they don't build that many um, new properties in in, uh, in the UK. And those that are built uh, new homes are generally big apartment blocks or huge big complexes done by the major developers. So most private real estate, inverted commas, developers in the UK are renovators. So developing runs the gamut of all sorts of um proposals that can be renovation that can be subdividing one block into two that can be building a house uh, on a block it, it can be you know cutting up a block into you know 20 blocks as land subdivision uh, they can be building you know a duplex two houses side by side it could be building a six-story apartment complex or a 100-story apartment complex development such a wide term and for a lot of people they look at the life of a, de- of a developer, they see him, um, you know, driving around a Ferrari or, you know, a nice car and nice clothes and out, eating out at restaurants. And they think that um, developing is the bee's knees. And in some cases, it can be. i um, got to tell you, though, I've watched developers over the years, uh, you know, one week right driving a Ferrari, next week driving a Ford. And that can be the life of a developer. It can be very up and down. Uh, and I want to start this developer special by saying this one thing. Um, I've got a whole heap of questions from uh, yourselves about developing, but the one thing I want to just leave you with immediately is this. I would have been a much more successful developer if and only if I had kept more of the product I built along the way. If I just had a small slice or kept the small slice of what I developed over the last 20 or 30 years, I'd be far wealthier than I am now and my cash flow would be far more stable rather than you know having a whole heap of money uh, in the bank account one month and not much the next. So if you are thinking about development, the best way to go about it is take it steady, steady, uh, grow with it and don't try and break records. Um, one of the biggest mistakes developers make is they go and do a duplex development, they do two, sell them, and you know they, they make some money and think, wow, okay, that's cool, let's go and do four. So they build four houses, sell them, and make some more money, and all of a sudden they're bulletproof, they're doing eight, and then next thing you know, they're doing 28, and the market crashes and they go broke. Um, I've seen that again and again and again. So development is also about timing, and it's about not being too greedy. It's about knowing what's suitable for you and working to your current level of knowledge uh, always seeking to improve that knowledge mind you but working to what you know uh, and being safe within those limits developing also is about risk mitigation all that means is finding ways to lower your risk uh, you really don't want to take risk because otherwise you end up like that developer you spent four years 
doing four or five projects and goes bust on the fifth. So you don't want that either. Anyway, I am excited about this. There's so many questions to answer, a whole development special. I do hope that you listen into this. It's a good one, particularly also if you're interested in, in brick raise in real estate crowdfunding, because if you're an investor and you want to invest in a development project, uh, but you don't want to be a developer, this is the way to do it. So the more you understand about the development process and, and the developers who will be listing their projects on BrickRays for you to invest in, the better. So grab a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or a cold drink, depends on where you are and what you're doing. Uh, this is going to be probably a 30-40 minute show and it'll be full of everything you might want to, well not everything, but full of the basics and full of some more advanced stuff as well as some tips on where to go for more information. I'm excited about it and I hope you are too. Let's get going. This series of questions is from a gentleman named Alex who I understand is in Queensland and he very much wants to learn how to be a developer. So he's asked some really intelligent questions, in fact a series of questions, and I think they're all relevant and I decided to consolidate them into one show so that it, it, it made sense. So you could you kind of like you can deep dive and learn a lot as you go. So Alex says, thank you for your Radio Wealth podcast. It's great how you are giving back like this as your experience is so valuable. Thanks for that, Alex. I have a couple of questions for you, please. Alex, there's more than a couple. There's like a dozen. All right. Alex says, if you want to read this out over several podcasts, that's fine. But look, smart thing to do is 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 dig deep and, and dive deep. That way you can learn a whole lot more in one session. All right. Alex's first question is, what is the smallest development you have done and what were the market conditions or size of the block, etc., that led to a small development being feasible? So there's a couple of questions there. First is, what's the smallest I have done? Depends how you define a development. So in the UK, a developer would be a renovator. So in some, in, in, I actually started uh, by buying homes and like just renting them out. And then um, my next, um, and that was a bit slow for me. The market wasn't moving so fast and I wanted to create capital growth quicker. So I started doing renovation projects. And in my view, that's the first step to becoming a developer because you're working with building projects and you're, you're, you're starting to understand the building process and it, it's a good way to start on the developer step. So I guess the smallest project I've done under those conditions would be a renovation project of, of, of a home or homes that I've done. I've done a few little apartments, things like that. Um, but the smallest, I guess, inverted commas, real development where I built something from scratch was simply a house on a block. That too is a development where you, you go out and buy a block, go and select a home builder to build a home for you and build that. That's that's a development. If, of course, you're doing it to make a profit and earn a living out of it, that's a development. So I guess the smallest inverted commas real development I've done would be a single home on a single block. And I started doing that when I was working for home builders in my early 20s. Uh, I started out working for Collier Homes in Perth and quite often I would see um, land agents come up with deals and, and they would let me know when they had a good block at a good price and I'd often go out and buy one and then I'd get a, a, um, uh, a like a little a little discount uh, which is usually my commission and a tiny discount on top of that from the, the building company and I'd build a house and then I'd sell that and make a little profit. So I, I started that way. The market conditions were generally fair. Development works best as a strategy when the market's moving up. That's the best time to be developing. Or it's finished like a downturn. It's had a period of prolonged um, like bottom bouncing and the signs are that things are starting to move. That's when it's a good time to 
grab a site and get moving fast. Um, worst thing you can do as a developer timing-wise is come in late. You know, when the market's starting to cool uh, and the market's heading downwards. So that's, the, that's the worst time. So uh, as far as whether a small development is feasible or not, I treat a one-house development the same way as I treat two or five or 10 or 20 or 50. They do need to be feasible. Uh, as a general comment, I'm looking for a 25% return on cost. So if the development's going to cost me a million dollars, my top-end profit, or my, my profit I want to make is, is 250000 So 25% of that 100000 cost. That's what I want to be making at a minimum. There are times in the market, like over here in Melbourne right now and in Sydney, where those markets, those margins are condensed to down to 15 and 20% when it gets really hard to buy a site at a reasonable price. Uh, and what you're hoping for is that the price of the apartments or land that you're selling will be moving up as you go for the development phase. But that, that's kind of risky. So I don't like to develop uh, large projects or even small projects with a margin that small. Uh, my absolute bottom dollar minimum is 20%, but I always aim for 25% plus as a margin. So um, Alex, the first question, a small development or any development is feasible for me when I've got a minimum of 25% margin in it, or an ideal margin of 25% with an absolute minimum of 20%, don't, 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 don't do a deal at less than those margins. You're better off sitting on the side and waiting until you can find one that works, okay? Worst mistake is getting in, buying too much for a site, and then realizing that you aren't gonna make much, if any, money on it at all. Uh, and if you have a 20 to 25% margin in it, the market can fall a bit and you, and you won't lose money. So that's a really important thing. So great question. Alex's next question is this. You have a rule that you never develop unless you have a certain amount of pre-sales. Would this apply to developments as small as a three-builder development? So what's a pre-sale? That's when I sell a home or a block of land that I'm going to build but haven't yet constructed off the plan to a buyer who puts down a 10 or 20% deposit uh, and gets the finance approval and we sign a contract before I've built anything. That's a pre-sale. What that does for me is, and for the bank, the person who's going to lend me the money to do the project, it shows the, the lender, that, and me for that matter, that the development is viable, that it can be sold at the price I think it can be sold at, and it lowers my risk. So uh, as a general comment, I would apply that to almost any project. Alex, uh, particularly if I had a lender involved, right? They, they're they going to want pre-sales. They need proof of what you're telling them. They need proof that you're going to sell your apartments for, you know, 500 grand or whatever the, the number is. And they want to be sure that there's less risk as well. So to a certain extent, when you're analyzing a project, you need to think like a bank and understand that for it to work, you have to have pre-sales. So as a general comment, yes, I would apply it to even a small three-villa development. My ideal circumstance is I want to have sales on a project that cover the amount of my peak debt. So, for example, if the peak debt on my million-dollar project is, I don't know, 800000 I want to have sold three or four apartments or, or blocks or, or houses or whatever the number is so that my sales amount covers the debt amount. That's my general rule. Probably the only time I wouldn't worry about pre-sales is where I plan to keep all the homes I was building 
or there was no debt. I was only using my own cash, and therefore I didn't care whether um, there'd be pre-sales because I wasn't worried. Uh, but if you're going to have debt, pre-sales is an absolute rock-solid strategy, and I'd always recommend it. Here's our third question from Alex, and this Alex says, I would like to become a full-time property developer. Alex, well done, noble calling, and it's one that uh, offers a lot of flexibility. And if you're a family man, offers time with your family, in between deals, that is. When you're on a deal, when you're searching for deals, you can be up to your neck in it and you know, not, not see, seeing your family a lot. So it's a very flexible job and very rewarding. Um, the most important thing for me about being a property developer is that I love to drive by projects I completed five years ago. And this is my, it's like a little aside for you, not really answering the question directly, but I judge the success of a development I've done not just by what I make. What I want to do is drive by in five years and have a look at the project and go, wow, how does that look? I want to see happy families. I want to see the project looking good, looking clean, I want to see it looking well maintained and I want to see people have made money and, and I want to see families living there and you know, I want to know that what I've done has been a good positive thing. So yeah, prop, being a property developer can be very rewarding. It can also be one of the toughest jobs in the world, uh, particularly given that you need to deal with you know, government, quasi-government, all kinds of levels to get p- proposals and developments, applications through, things like that. Uh, and banks, lenders particularly, are just it's just terrible to deal with right now and that's 2016 at mark 216 as i speak um so uh, look hats off to you alex for wanting to be a full-time property developer there aren't many people who can do it it's a very specialized role um and i hope that uh, you can work it out so you can do it and follow your dream i'd always encourage that but it absolutely is not for everyone and for those who want to play the role of a property developer but don't want to take all that risk, uh, best way to, to do it is get involved in property development projects via BrickRace. That's at BrickRace.com, the real estate crowdfunding project which is a site which has just opened up. That's our, our company as well. Um, now, Alex also goes on to ask, would you suggest I work for a developer to start off with? Alex, very wise. I'd 100% suggest that. Uh, and that could be uh, a role for 12 months to two or three years, depending on what you're doing. Uh, strongly recommend look at it from the inside uh, and get paid while you're doing it. Why not get paid to be to learn to be a property developer? And there's nothing wrong with using that income as a basis from which to start your first single home or duplex or triplex uh, development. Nothing wrong with that at all, uh, three-villa development. So while you're working for the developer, nothing wrong with that. I, I'd encourage you... To do that, I think it's a really important step. I learned the hard way, and when I say the hard way, I learned um, by making mistakes, and I learned by by getting things done right. I just kind of like muddled my way through it. So if I'd been smarter, I would have absolutely gone to a developer and gone, "Pick me. Um, here's what I'm great at real estate. Um, I want to learn, and here's what I bring to the table." So yes, strongly recommend going work for a developer. It's a really good move. Uh, next question number four: What are the different roles? within a developer is what, what Alex has said. Now, what I'm not sure Alex is asking me here is, what does the developer, him or herself, do? Or what are the various roles involved 
in a development program? So I've decided to answer both those questions. Um, and the first question is, what are the, well, the way I'll answer it, the first, I guess, role um, within a development project is the developer. Uh, and I'll come back to what that person does in just a minute. But the developer um, is the start of the process. This is the person with the vision. Um, one of the most powerful capabilities I've developed over years is be able to walk to a site or look at a, an empty site and just feel it and imagine what I can do with that site, whether it be villa homes or subdividing into lots or building low-rise apartments or anything. I imagine what could go on that site. To be able to picture it on site and then work out the numbers uh, is a really important skill. So that's that's the first thing the developer does. Now, moving on from that, um, obviously you need to have uh, a real estate agent or agents in your team who help you find sites. Uh, you'll need um, an architect uh, who can help you sketch up uh, what might fit on that site. So let's say you go and see a six-unit site and you go and sit down with your architect, you pay them you know, a few hundred or a few thousand dollars to sketch up, say, a, a six-villa you know, um, department or development on, on that site, what they could look like. You need um, a town planner who can help you through the um, planning application stage, uh, although the architect might be able to do that. They may have an in, in, internal town planner. That, that's what we've got. Uh, architects, town planners in the same office, but you need a town planner who can help you, particularly with a bigger project. And a town planner can be worth their weight in gold in terms of they can help you get the maximum out of your site. So you need a town planner, you need uh, a financier. The earlier you get your financier involved, the better. That might be one of the major banks. It might be a broker who specializes in development projects. Uh, there's brokers out there who are very, very good who work with uh, mum and dad, you know, home ownership for own occupation, and then there's brokers out there who all they do with development projects, find a specialist, because they'll help you put your project up in the format that the development lenders want to see. Uh, you might need an accountant if you aren't good at creating a cash flow and a um, feasibility, all right? There are all kinds of software you can use to help you produce a feasibility. Um, just Google Development Feasibility um, Australia uh, in Google and you know, a series of software programs will come up. Start with the least expensive one and work your way up. Um, then uh, you've got your, once you've got your, your financing look, looked at, uh, you've got your planners, you need builder or builders to look at the sketches and give you a ballpark figure uh, on what they think uh, the project might uh, cost. And of course they'll base that on, on the sketches and the specifications that will have been decided upon by you and your architect. Um, after the builder, you also have to have a sales team and a marketing team because, and you want them, especially the sales team who can, and you don't have to have hired them. You can, I, I outsource everything. I don't have sales teams anymore. I find specialist companies who are great at selling off the plan, which is very, very different to selling uh, like, an, like an agent with a home open. Uh, selling off the plan is a specialized skill. You tend to pay your, those agents a bit more money, like three to five percent, uh, rather than two to three percent to your local neighborhood real estate agent who will open your home up on a weekend. Um, so 
a good marketing company, again, worth their weight in gold. These people can help you get the pre-sales you want, uh, which will lower your risk and help your lender make a decision to lend to you. Um, and of course, you need a good solicitor. In fact, you might have had your solicitor involved in earlier, particularly with the contracts to buy the property. Um, but your solicitor also will help you create contracts uh, to to write, to sell you your properties and also attend a settlement on your behalf, which is when you collect checks, which is a good, good thing to do. So that's the basic sort of property development team and the different roles within a development. But a developer, what's his or her role? Bottom line is the developer does 70% of his or her work in the first 30% of the project timeline. And the last 30% of his or her work is done in the last 70% of the project timeline. So the developer, most of our work is done up front. Now, what does that mean? Site visiting, site selecting, uh, running numbers, knowing what you can build on a site, how much for, and doing back of the envelope. Is it is it uh, profitable? And then if it is, starting to fine-tune that once you talk with your architects, town planners, and builders. And then very quickly uh, working to negotiate a deal with the landowners. Uh, a developer needs to be a great negotiator. Uh, you need to pay the right amount of money for a site and you need to have enough time in which to go out and get your development approval. So as a general comment, I will try to get an option to buy a site, which I'll pay a small deposit on and I'll try and get that for as long as I can, six months, 12 months, 18 months. The bigger the development, the longer the time I need to go out and, and then go and get development approvals. If I can get development approvals, that, again, mitigates my risk, and I haven't had to borrow a whole lot of money to buy the site during that process without knowing for sure what I can get on the site. So try and get an option the first thing. If you can't, get a long-dated offer. So in other words, try not to settle on a site early. Part of negotiating is that you want 12, 18 months, even longer, to settle on that site. That that time is critical to you. Uh, so... Early on, it's negotiating, standing on the site, being able to figure out what you can build on it, running numbers, uh, and then coordinating the early uh, part of the project with your architect, planner, builder, financiers. And that's most of your job. Um, once that's happened, a whole train of events starts to go and, and lots of other people get involved and your job then really is to monitor and make sure you get to the other end where uh, the settlements happen and you get a check, that you get money. That, that's, that's the end bit. That's probably the most important part of the job. Very easy for a developer to get into a project, but the key is to be able to get out of it profitably. So that comes down to making sure you select the right kind of property uh, to build for the area. So for example, in an area dominated by single-level family homes, you wouldn't go and build a six-story apartment one bed apartments, it wouldn't work. You need to make sure that that you're doing horses for courses building, and you need to make sure that your project is price sensitive to what else has gone on in the past. What you don't want to be doing is be building the absolute rock bottom cheapest apartments in an area, and nor do you want to build the most expensive luxury kind of apartments. Try and stick in the middle. Try and stick where with product that the past already been blazed, and you know it the market wants to buy it. Um, generally speaking, the people who beat a path down in property development and who are first into an area 
that's being redeveloped, like early, early, early into an area that's like been a bit run down. Um, those developers who come and build the fancy apartments first up are the ones who don't make any money. The ones who follow them, once the market starts to realise, oh, this suburb is changing, and yes, okay to to, build, to buy an apartment here or a new home or a new villa or whatever it is. Those are the developers who tend to pick up uh, the profit. So. That was a rather long-winded answer to your question, Alex, but I think I got the essence of what you're looking for. The next question in our development special is this, number five. Are there any good books about property development? And the answer is yes. Uh, There are many. Probably the best that have been written and updated not that long ago is Australian Residential Property Development for Investors, uh, written by a chap named Ron Forley, F-O-R-L-E-E. Uh, what you need to do is, he's got two books, I think, and that's paperback and, and an e-book. Uh, the key would be just go to uh, Google, and you would Google uh, property development in Australia, and um, see what it comes up with. They'll come up with a bunch of books, but the ones written by uh, uh, Mr. Forley are probably the best on the subject although I'd grab as many of them as I could and just soak them up over time. Uh, his other book is uh, An Intelligent Guide to Australian Property Development, and he's also got Australian Residential Property Development, which is probably the probably the, 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 the premier one, uh, published by Right Books. And But the, the, look, there's plenty of good ones out there, but they're probably the best too. Uh, next question from Alex is this. How prevalent is buying development land through the use of options? Have you used these? What is your usual option fee and when do you pay it to the prospective vendor? Okay, let's explain first what an option is uh, before we do anything. An option is a right but not an obligation to buy or sell something at a future date in time. So what that might mean is, let's say you've got a block of land uh, and it's next door to your house and um, you know, I, know, I rock up and go, look, I'm a property developer and you know, I'd like to the right to... to um, to buy your site from you in 12 months from now. Uh, and you go, well, why? You know, why not just give me the money? And I say, well, look, I've got to go through a development process where I apply for development approvals and I'm not sure what I'm going to get on the site just yet. I think I can pay you, I don't know, a million dollars for your site. Um, I think I can put 10 apartments on it. Um, and what I'd like to do is give you $10,000 now for the right to buy it uh, in 12 months' time. So... Um, that's kind of how an option works. If the vendor agrees, uh, they get to get that $10,000 payment from me and they get to keep that no matter what. I then need to show up at settlement uh, 12 months later with sorry, $990,000, which is the balance between $10,000 and a million, and then I own that site. Now, during that period of time, uh, I would have my skates on trying to get development approval uh, for those 10 apartments I wanted to build on the site. And that might cost me anywhere from 50 to 200 grand, depending on where it is, who I'm dealing with, what kind of project. So there's a significant investment in that site. What some people do is negotiate uh, an 18-month or two-year time period, and they'll go through that process to get a, get a development approval, and then they'll sell the site onto somebody else. So what happens is uh, sometime between you know, the time I sign the contract and the, the time period under which my contract runs out, uh, I could on-sell to someone else for a small profit to cover my costs and I can actually make a profit out of it because I've added value to the site. 
uh, where before when you owned it was just like a like a paddock, um, I've come along and added value to it by getting a building permit for ten apartments, and that makes less risk for a developer to come along by the site and start building immediately. So they're willing to probably pay me more. They might pay me one point three million for that site. Uh, I go ahead and pay you your your one million dollars on it. Let's say I spend one hundred and fifty on getting the development approvals through and I make my profit of 150 over the time period that take took to get done. So options are used a lot, Alex, uh, often with, with development projects of size, you don't usually see them on small projects like one, two or three homes. It's, it's rare. But the bigger the project, the better chance you'll get an option. If you can't get an option, you should always be negotiating for the longest possible settlement time. Uh, the more time you have to get those approvals and pre-sales, the better for you and, and finance because finance is really hard to get right now and I don't see that changing in the near future. And that's another reason why BrickRaise will do really, really well because not only does it provide opportunities for investors, it provides opportunities for developers uh, who want to get funding or get a development done but can't get funding. So BrickRaise may be able to help them if they've got a profitable project. So um, it's... It's something I've used quite a bit in the past and something I plan to use a lot in the future. Options or extended settlements if I'm if I'm very sure about the site before I even do anything. If, if, I, if I know pretty much based on experience that I can get 10 apartments on that site, um, then I'm, I'm relatively happy to go for an extended settlement rather than an option uh, if, I can, if I can help uh, that. But bottom line is... Um, the least risky strategy for me is the um, option if I can get it, but not all vendors understand options. So you need to be good at explaining that. Okay. What is your usual option fee and when do you pay it to the prospective vendor? If you are dealing with a real estate agent, the general rule of thumb is it could be as much as 1% per month uh, as an option fee on the, on the purchase price of the um of the property, so if you were trying to buy a million-dollar site and you um, had to pay the inverted comma standard industry accepted fee, that'd be ten grand a month, uh, which could add up to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars over the time period of your option if you had a twelve-month option, which is quite a lot of money. So I tend not to try and get any standard kind of agreements. I tend to try and get the absolute minimum uh, option fee that I can: ten grand, five grand. $1,000, whatever the minimum I can possibly get. Obviously, if you're dealing with a $10 million site, probably the minimum you're going to be able to get away with is maybe 100k, something like that. Okay, And when the vendor wants to know why I don't put 10% deposit down, I'm going to say, well, you get in the option fee, you get to keep that no matter what. Uh, and I have to go and spend you know, a few hundred grand to get all the approvals, and I'm going to make your, your block more valuable. So if I don't settle on it, and I get these approvals for you, um, you're going to make money. So try and get away with the absolute least amount of cash possible. Again, that minimizes your risk. Because if you get to the end of the deal, um, and let's say you put down a, a $10,000 option fee, and you spent fifty grand on a development of, like like approval, and it doesn't come through, and for some reason you can't settle on time, you can't get the money, you've risked 60000 which is your $50,000 on your development application and your ten grand on your option fee. Imagine if you'd paid a 10% option fee, which you don't get back. That could be a $160,000 deal that you, where you lose money. So you don't want to do that. So the minimum option fee is, is 
the best. Now, what are the top five things? This is question number seven. What are the top five most important things to watch out for when undertaking a development? It might not be what you think, Alex. Um, the first things I want to be looking at when I'm undertaking a development or looking to undertake one is what's, what's the market? How is the market going where I'm looking to develop? Um, I want to be developing in a market that's moving up uh, or has finished a sideways or downward movement kind of period and there's some kind of sign it's starting or it's moving up strongly. So before I undertake any development, that's the environment I want to be developing in. That may mean there are some years where you do not develop, where you sit on the sidelines. Okay, And that's why you need cash flow from uh, houses or apartments that you built that you've kept. All right? Um, so there could be a year where you just go on holiday. There's nothing you can do. Uh, and you would expect them probably one or two years out of ten. Uh, and where developers run into trouble is they keep trying to develop in a, in a market which isn't conducive. They can't sell their properties. Finance gets tight and, and they can easily burn what they've created. So market signs is the first most important thing I'm, I'm looking at when undertaking for. Secondly, the site itself. Uh, the more regular the shape, the site, the flatter it is, the more happier I am because it's a less risky development. If you're building on a sloping site, it's more costly. Uh, you may not realize the cost of cutting and filling and retaining walls. It can really blow out uh, the value and, sorry, really blow out your costs, but they won't add any value. Your um, buyer won't pay you any more for that. And so as a consequence, a sloping site, you always want to buy for a lot less than you are a flat site. So make sure your site's regular. And around the site, what does it look like? If I build six brand new villas in this uh, area where um, there's a tip across the front, you know, across the road from me and there's a car body in the house next door and um, the guys on the other side run a crack house, um, it, it's not going to be ideal. So the, the surrounding immediate environment is also important. Um, you need to be very, very aware of your builder uh, and what they're doing and keep monitoring them. And if you aren't going to do it, hire a QS or a quantity surveyor to get along there and monitor what they do, maybe even a building inspector um, to, from time to time, check the work, make sure it's been done as per spec and uh, on to timeline and that the work is good quality because the, it's much harder to fix up something that's gone wrong at the end than it is along the way. So um, your QS also will uh, determine if the finishes have been done as per specification. It's important. Uh, you need to watch out for your timeline. If your timeline blows out, that can really cost you money. There's nowhere that I can think of where the old adage, time is money, is more relevant than in developments. Uh, time and time again in projects, I've been delayed and it's taken longer than what I thought. And I've had investors go, gee, Craig, um, I need my money back six months ago. Um, but I'm glad you paid now. Uh, because development is not an exact science. It's more of an art. And things can and do go wrong. So your timeline is critical. If you're off off on your timeline, try and do whatever you can to get back onto it, whatever it takes. Your timeline's critical. And lastly, I'm watching out for communication between all the parties, all the team, between the time, between the town planner, between the architect, between the builders, the QS, the uh, any engineers, um, any building inspector who are operating on my behalf, um, my sales team, my financing team. I need to know what's going on at any one stage. So communication is something that's really important to, to keep going what you don't want to do is do your 70 percent of the job up front and then just wait for a check at the end you need to know what's going along along the way so communication is probably the it is a really important thing to look out for
Okay, three questions to go. Uh, Alex gets quite complex here, so here's the next question. As we all know, Western Australia is a commodities-reliant state in Australia, same as Queensland. Uh, much of the recent demand for these commodities has been from infrastructure construction in China, correct? Uh, I read recently about the new Silk Road that China is using as a foreign policy to build infrastructure and influence countries where it's being built. That means using the commodities of those countries, think Africa. From what you're seeing in WA, do you see that Perth or WA in general will miss out on the next wave of demand for commodities? Uh, no. Look, China definitely is using foreign policy to gain influence in Africa, uh, where the governments are less sophisticated than those in Australia and infrastructure needs to be built. Uh, the reason why WA has been such a successful commodities producer over the last 50 or 60 years is that we have stable government, it's very close to Asia, transport costs are low, uh, the mining techniques are very efficient uh, on a large scale, uh, and good quality materials, all kinds of, I mean, WA's got everything. It's got gold, it's got bauxite for aluminium, uh, diamonds, uh, iron ore, oil, gas, uh, Look, you name it, um, nickel, uh, AA's got it, and it's been a reliable supply, and that's valued around the world. Um, China will continue to buy uh, from WA, so as will Japan, as it goes through its next sort of phase of growth. And but coming behind those two behemoths is India. India is now looking to buy lots of coal mines and iron ore uh, facilities. In fact, they've stopped uh, exporting iron ore and coal, and they're stockpiling and building facilities to to start creating steel. So they're going to go through their own little industrial growth boom period over the next 10 to 20 years, and a WA will benefit from that, have no doubt. Um, so WA won't miss out on the next wave of commodities. It will benefit dramatically, uh, given it's the most isolated Western capital in the world, and it's the most westernized capital that's closest to Asia. And it just happens to have all these amazing things that Asia needs to, 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 to build itself and grow. So... I'm very bullish long-term WA. Next question is this. Uh, Alex says, I see advertorials and advertisements about the boom in seaside suburbs. However, all I see in the pictures is global warming and a rising sea level, etc. Am I too far ahead of the curve or overzealous in my concerns? Well, yes and no. I don't think you should ever be overzealous in your concerns about the environment. I mean, we all live on this planet and we need it to be as pristine as we can. Um, bottom line is, um, there are now 7 billion human beings on the planet and we are affecting it. There's no doubt about that at all. Um, and I, I think we all have a responsibility to do everything we can to make sure our environment uh, is looked after as best we can. And even if it's just a small thing like you know recycling your stuff, uh, cutting down on, on your use of resources and being just being very conscious about what you do and how you do it, I think from an individual level we can all do something. So I also think you are too far ahead of the curve. Um, and I wouldn't worry too much about rising sea levels in the in the next probably, in our lifetimes anyway. Alex, maybe in a hundred years from now it could be different. Uh, but bottom line is, and again, this may annoy some people, but that's okay, and they may not agree with me, and that's also okay. We're all entitled to our opinions. I actually think that global warming is a bit of a beat up. Uh, I do think that humans are responsible uh, in large part for lot of the excess pollution which i think has accelerated what i believe is the natural warming and cooling of our planet if you look back through history you'll find there's been um cooling cool periods warm periods ice ages and so on and 
there were ice ages and there were warm periods long before humans were producing you know, black smoke from factories and from um, car tailpipes. Uh, and the population was tiny. Uh, I think of our Earth as a living, breathing thing. And I think we are part of it. And I think that what we've done in the last 200 years in terms of industrialization has certainly exacerbated the problem. But I think global warming would happen, or global cooling or warming would happen, whether or not we're here. And that's just the life cycle of our planet. So um, sea levels will rise, sea levels will drop. Ice will form, ice will melt. That's that's the living, breathing aspect of our planet. So I, I apologize if you don't agree with me, but that, that's my feeling. Um, I've done a lot of work on it, and uh, that's what I've come up with. Uh, perfectly happy to hear your opinion. If it's different, that's fine. And perfectly respect your opinion if you feel that humans are evil and we've done all this bad stuff. Uh, and, and to a certain extent, we have. But uh, bottom line is, it's natural. Um, I wouldn't be worried, Alex, about investing in seaside suburbs. But you know what? If you're unsure, don't. Um, or if you are unsure, um, buy in the higher parts of the seaside suburbs. Don't buy it at, at sea level. That was a fascinating question. Now, back to our last question from Alex is this. One of your guiding principles of property development is to obtain pre-sales before commencement. What is the minimum size development you deem this necessary? Uh, I think we did cover this off on one of the earlier questions. Um, I would think if it was possible, I would get a pre-sale or pre-sales for every development wherever I had debt. So um, I think back to the times when I first started doing my developing and it was a single house on a single block. Wherever I could, I sold that home and land package to people who walked into my display center before it was even built or before it was finished. I'd put them in my car and we'd drive out and I'd show them the house under construction and I would sell it there and then on the spot. So that's not a proper pre-sale, but it's kind of a sale before it's finished. Um, Alex, wherever possible, a developer must do everything possible to mitigate his or her risk, particularly if you've got a lender or you have investors backing you. And part of that is pre-sale. So wherever that is, try to get pre-sales because otherwise you're risking too much. All right. Um, remember I gave you the example of a, a developer who did two, then four, then eight, and then um, 28. Um, probably by the time they got the 28, they think they're bulletproof and they've gone ahead with no pre-sales because the market's going up and you know things are great and um, that's exactly the time when the market will turn on you and bite you in the butt. Okay, So it's been a great show. I've really enjoyed doing this one. I get quite excited about it. I could talk about it all day, but you probably don't have all day. Maybe you're in your car, maybe you're on the bus, maybe you're in a taxi, Maybe you're at home, maybe you're lying in bed and you've got your earphones on and this was putting you to sleep. But wherever you are, I do hope that you've got some insight now on the mystical, magical world of the property developer. It can be exciting, it can be terrifying uh, all at the same time. It can be rewarding and it can be frustrating, incredibly so, all at the same time. Um, I hope that it's helped you. I hope that some of you guarantee you it will have turned you off and that's great. Uh, maybe the best way for you to be a developer is to be a pseudo-developer and invest in uh, development projects uh, like the ones that I might do, Alex might do, or other developers will do via BrickRay. So check that out. Uh, Incidentally, um, at any time now, we will have our first live project up there, and I hope that you'll have a look at it and um, and join us. Um, Really enjoyed the project. Um, Last thing Alex wanted to cover off on was this. He said, uh, Craig, also you mentioned about getting a few people on your podcast to interview. It'd be great to cover up areas like finance, architecture, building, landscaping, environmental house design, etc. Look, over time, we absolutely want to add guests. If you know someone who you think 
you'd like to know more about and you'd like to see them interviewed on Radio Wealth, please send me their names and contact details if you have them and I'll do whatever I can to interview them and get them on the show. So remember, this is your show. Uh, I need your questions and your feedback to make it work. Otherwise, it's me speaking monologue to you and I don't want that. Uh, This is your show. You tell me what you want to hear. I'll do the very best I can to help educate and inspire you. Thank you once again and look forward to speaking to you next week. Thanks for listening to Radio Wealth. The Radio Wealth podcast is produced for your enjoyment. The show notes are found at my website, www.craigturnbull.com or over at iTunes. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. You can also follow me on Twitter at CraigTurnbull underscore and also over at Facebook. You can join in the show by sending in your questions to hello at CraigTurnbull.com. Radio Wealth, inspiration and guidance for next generation property.